This is the third week of this series on generosity, and um, it's been a great it's been a great series in a lot of ways. It's gone different different directions than I thought, but it's been really really rewarding. We've just been following God's spirit through through each week. Um, we've been dealing with this one particular verse in the Bible, Malachi three verse ten. So I'm going to bring it up every week. We've been reading it together. Let's do that again now. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. So that's been our, our framework for this series. We've been, this is the third week in it. And if you guys remember, we took three words from that verse to give us a basic uh, structure to talk about generosity. And so the first week we talked about the word storehouse. And what does it mean to bring our, our, our time, our talents, and our treasures into God's storehouse, especially as opposed to our storehouse or any other person or idol's storehouse? And that was really a, a reminder that idolatry is a barrier, a central barrier to generosity. Then last week, we talked about just the guideline of the tithe. Tithe is a, a word that means 10%. We're called to give 10% of our first fruits, uh, the first things that we get. And we're also called, uh, I believe biblically, to uh, give 10, save 10, live off of 80. And then beyond that, there is a biblical mandate, a biblical encouragement to be radically generous. So last week, we just talked about what it meant to be radically generous and to give to God and to others. And today we're going to talk about this, this other phrase that's in that verse, blessing and storehouse of heaven. So it ends with God saying, look, if you do this, if you bring all of your stuff into my storehouse, he says, I'm going to give you a blessing and I'm going to open up, the text says, the windows of heaven, which is always like the coolest, coolest imagery to me. What does it mean to receive God's blessing from generosity? What does it mean that if we're generous, God will open up the windows of heaven? And actually what I want to do is I want to start off today by talking to you what that does not mean. I want to talk about what the blessing from God, from generosity does not mean. And I want to use very, very decisive and very, very almost strong language here because I want uh, us all to understand something that I believe is a mistaken reading of scripture. And that is simply this, that the blessing from God, if we are generous, does not mean that we get financial blessing out of it all the time, okay? Um, you might have heard this thing called the, the prosperity gospel. You might have heard, you might have seen preachers on TV with really, really elegantly coiffed hair and really, really expensive suits. And they will tell you something like, look, if you send me $5, what God wants for you is he wants for you to be rich because he wants to bless you. So if you send me $5, I'll send you 10 in 20 days. And I want to tell you, that is not the way God's blessing works. So you might disagree with me. That's fine. But as I read the Bible, I'm going to tell you in no uncertain terms, the blessing of God does not, is not a get-rich scheme. Uh, living your life biblically is not a get-rich scheme. Uh, living your life biblically is not necessarily a get-rich-ever scheme. I would tell a lot, of, a lot of those preachers, have you ever read the Gospels? Because at one point, Jesus' life takes on a radical turn towards self-sacrifice self and compassion. And if I'm not mistaken, 
he ends up uh, tortured and dying on a cross. So that always puts a little bit of a, a kink in the prosperity gospel for me. Because I'm called to live my life like Jesus, right? And Jesus didn't get rich, right? So anyway, we all cool with that? But there is a blessing. There is a blessing. God does open up the windows of heaven. So uh, here's what the text says in there. If you actually to read verse 11, God says, I'm going to open up the windows of heaven. And then he says this. He's like, your crops are going to grow and, and there's going to be abundance. But uh, see, here's where we get, get off track. We read scriptures like that and we read those use and we read those blessings as things that are meant for me, myself, and I, where the text actually means them corporately. It means that God wants to bless the whole land because crops are like not just for only one person. God says, I want the whole land to benefit from my blessing. I want all my people to benefit from my blessing. So what's crazy is that the blessing of God is not meant for me alone. It's actually meant to spill over to the rest of the world. It's not a private wealth scheme. It's a way that God wants to give to everybody, all of his people, the whole land, and I dare say the whole world. So um, with that sort of framework in place, um, we're gonna explore what blessing means. But before we do that, I wanna draw your attention to something that is in this space uh, that helps me understand at least where I felt God wanting to take us today as a, as a people. It's a, there's something in this space, and it's a ritual that you probably don't even know we do. And if you notice, every Sunday, there is a candle lit on the stage. And sometimes it's on the piano, and we, we, um, we just kind of always keep it out. Uh, this actually started last summer. Um, there was a particularly really heavy stretch of, of news cycles in the summer. And it just seemed like every Saturday when we, or every Sunday morning when we walked in here, it was like the evening before something awful happened, you know? And we had shootings and we had um, ISIS and we had just thing after thing after thing happening in the world. And... Um, you know, one of the ways that Jesus talks about himself is he says, I'm, I'm the light of the world. Anybody ever read that or heard that? But we got to a season where we kind of started saying, you know what, like, <laughs> it seems really dark out there. And so we, we said, you know what we're going to do? Um, every Sunday, we're going to light this candle, and we call it the Christ candle. Some other faith traditions actually do, do this more explicitly. But we, but we said, every Sunday, we're going to have a candle lit on stage. So when I walk in here and my heart is really heavy from something that's happened Saturday or Friday or Thursday or whenever, I can just look at that candle and I can say, you know, okay, yes, uh, the truth and the news seems really awful right now, but there's a light. There's a light. His name is Jesus and he's, and he's still out there, you know, and, and it became a tangible way for us as a worship team and as a, as a ministry here to look around and go, okay, look, not only is there light in the world, but you know, ultimately, though there is a lot of hope, politics can do a lot of good, economics can do a lot of good, 
All these things out there can do a lot of good, but our ultimate hope is in a man named Jesus because Jesus is king. And so that's why that's there. As you see it, uh, it's not just a random candle. We're not waiting for the lights to go out like they did last Sunday. Um, it speaks hope to us. And this comes out of a long tradition in the Bible. And so I know some of you guys have been waiting for me to say this for, forever. Some of you guys have been dreading me ever saying this. But please open your Bible to the book of Revelation. <laughs> open your, if you have your Bible, just open it up to the last page of the text, Revelation 22. And here's a word. If you're a new believer, kind of at the front end of your faith journey, and you really want to read Revelation, don't. Just wait, just wait. Just be there, it'll be there, you know, after you take the stage classes, because I always say, you know, if you read Revelation, it's just going to be more meetings for me with you. So, so look, listen, this is the way the whole of the Bible ends. Revelation 22, verse 20, the writer, and, and he's interacting with God. God speaks, he says, he who is faith, the faithful witness to all of these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Those are the words of Christ. And then the writer says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry that closes out our Bible and the book of Revelation. And it's one of the reasons why we light this candle. It's a, it's a tangible way that we say every week, come, Lord Jesus, because ultimately things are not going to be the way they're supposed to be until he shows up again. Amen? And it's appropriate that Revelation closes this way because I don't know how much you've read or what you've heard about Revelation. There's a, there's a, there's a, a perception that the whole of Revelation, I'm just going to be really quick here, focuses on something that's going to happen in the future. And so, you know, you read these uh, stories in Revelation of dragons and, and sea monsters and everything and, and the number of the beast, right? Iron Maiden band or whatever. So like... But I want you to hear me. The book of Revelation was actually meant to speak to a church in crisis that, were, that was experiencing those things then. It's not a far off, slightly scary dream that might happen in the end. It actually was written to a church that was experiencing those things right then, right there. You see, at this point, the church of, of, of Jesus Christ is, is uh, dwelling in the midst of a Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire tolerated a lot of things, but one of the things it would not tolerate was saying that there was a different king than Caesar. And so as, as uh, these people, these Christians, kept proclaiming over and over again, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the king, his name's not Caesar, and he doesn't live in Rome, Rome started to get, well, look, this isn't okay with us. And so the pressure on the church is getting harder and harder and harder. And people are starting to be pulled out and thrown into the gladiatorial arenas and, and eaten by wild animals. And you couldn't come out right then and say you didn't have freedom of, the, freedom of speech. You didn't have freedom of press. You couldn't come right out and say, write a whole book about how awful Rome is. And so uh, what began to happen is that John uh, or whoever wrote Revelation uh, received these images from God as like, hey, this is a way to encourage the church. And so they, he writes this. He's like, look, things are awful. The empire is like a beast. The emperor is like a beast 
who is trying to tear you up and destroy you. Ah, but there's another hope. And so Revelation does end with a future promise that we're waiting for. But Revelation is written to a church that's seeing an awful lot of bad news. And they're seeing things around them and they're like, man, there's so much darkness out there. And I think we could look around and say the same things, could we not? See, the cry of our hearts is still the same, is it not? Come, Lord Jesus. You know, the news is, is not encouraging on the whole right now. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of bad news. But whether it's good or bad, the cry of our hearts is still, come, Lord Jesus. And I was thinking about this this week. Um, and I was listening to a, a pastor friend of mine actually also talk sort of about some of this stuff. And, and he, he gave me these words. The prayer of come Lord Jesus for a lot of us is also paraphrased as this. A cry out to God that says, God, when will you come down here and fix all this? Anybody ever be hopeful for that? God, when will you show up? Because when you show up, you're going to fix everything. And it's not usually any of the things that I'm in favor of. It's always the things I'm, right? But God, when you show up, you're going to fix everything. That's the cry of our hearts. That's come Lord Jesus. That's Revelation 22:20. 20. But there's a subtlety to the way God works in the world. And there's a subtlety to when we cry those things out, we cry that cry that I want to explore today. And it shows up first uh, in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. Um, he goes around healing people and, and preaching. And he starts to, at one point, he's really popular. And uh, he's going to teach somewhere and his disciples are like, Jesus, there's like 5,000 people waiting on you to teach. And then they say, and they're hungry because there's no subways nearby or Taco Bell, right? So they're like, and he's like, they're like, Jesus, all these people want to hear you, man. They're hungry. And Jesus says the most peculiar thing to them. You know what he asks his disciples? He says, how much food do you have? And, and you just want to pause there. Because if you know who Jesus is, if you have an inkling to Jesus, I think there's a question behind the question or there's a statement behind the statement that his disciples say, Jesus, there's 5,000 people here. They're hungry. And I think the unstated question is, oh, and you're Jesus. So surely you can just and take care of this. But Jesus does the most mind-blowing things. He looks at his disciples and he says, how much food do you have? And I think they're like, maybe you didn't hear me, Jesus. Like, you're Jesus. I'm How much food do you have? Jesus actually expects his disciples to do something about this. And he, he asks them twice. And, and they get to the thing and he teaches. And, and they finally say, well, Jesus said to do it. I guess we should. So somehow they feed 5,000 people with food left over. Jesus asks his disciples, how much do you have? And that's not out of left field for God's people because that uh, fits a typology that starts all the way back in Exodus. So I'm going to read a couple of passages from Exodus. Let me, set this, let me set the stage here. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. Egypt is the, is the superpower of the region. They are the empire of the region, most powerful nation in the area. 
and God's people, the rescue plan, the plan by which God is going to bring about the redemption of creation are slaves. So there's this guy named Moses. Anybody heard of Moses? Grows up in Pharaoh's household, uh, murders a, an Egyptian overseer, and runs away. And Moses is a shepherd now in, you know, in, in the backwoods, far away from, from where he's supposed to be. And God shows up and he says this to Moses, Exodus 3, verse 9. God says, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me. And I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abuse them. Now go, for I am sending, what? You. I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Oh, only the most powerful person in the area. I'm sending you. You must lead my people out of Egypt. This is another moment where if you're Moses, you're like, I, come again, God. Come again, because I thought you said you were sending me. Surely, God, you meant to say, I'm going to send my, my archangel, Michael, or, or one of those messengers of God, because Pharaoh doesn't stand a chance about him, even those powers. God's like, no, 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 this thing is going on. There's trouble in the world, and God says, I'm going to do something about it. Guess what? By sending you. And again, I always put myself, and I'm sure, sorry if I'm belaboring this, but I think about this unfolding in Moses. And, and Moses is, you know, he's, he's, Isra he's Israelite. He's a Jew. And God's like, I've seen the cry. I've heard the cry of my people. Yes, Moses says. I'm going to do something about this. Yes, Moses says. I'm going to send you. <laughs> and so Moses starts protesting and disagreeing with God. It's awesome. He's like, surely you don't mean this, God. I can't do this. I can't do this. And he, and he hesitates and he hesitates and he hesitates. But God's like, no, 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 no. There's trouble in the world. I'm sending you, Moses. Moses says, well, how's this going to work? Turn over one chapter, uh, first couple verses of chapter four. Moses had been protesting and he protests again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, What's that in your hand? Moses says a shepherd's staff. Because he was a shepherd. That's what he did. Now, if you, you think about this, what does the shepherd's staff represent to Moses? It's his, it's his, may, um, it's his me method of income. It is what he calls himself. Hey, Moses, what are you? Who are you? I'm a shepherd. How do you take care of yourself? How do you provide for your family? I'm a shepherd. What are you called to do, Moses? Right now, I'm called to be a shepherd. And Moses is like, okay, God, you say you're sending me, uh, but, but how am I going to get this done, God? How are they going to trust me? And God says, look in your right hand. It's a staff. It's my identity. In our language, that what language we've been using here, it, you could almost say that the staff represents Moses' time, talent, and treasure. And God says, if you know the story, he says, put it on the ground. Lay it down. Release it. And Moses does. And anybody know what happens? The staff turns into a snake, which I would have been out, out, out. <laughs> God should have turned it into a puppy dog. <laughs> snake not working. 
But God's like, no, this is going to be the sign. It only works, Moses, if you lay it down. It only works if you release it. But what's in your right hand? What do you have to feed these 5,000 people? I'm sending you. And so I think that uh, God asked the same thing for his church today. What's in your right hand? Right? And he asked that of me personally, and he asked that of all of you personally. Eric, what's in your right hand? Well, you know, I can play some music. Oh, I can, I can talk. Oh, I can talk. Um, you know, I, 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 I try, to, try to be effective. Eric, what's in your right hand? Okay, Eric, are you willing to lay it down? Are you willing to release it? Because if you release it, we can, we can deal with some of these troubles in the world. And he asks all of you the same question. What's in your right hand? What time, what talents, what treasures? And are you willing to lay it down? Are you willing to release it? But what, but what occurred to me also is that he asks that of us as a people too. And what I want to show you is something that's in our right hand that might just blow your mind, okay? There's a book that was written in 2005. It's called Passing the Plate. And just to let you know where we're going, the subtitle is Why American Christians Don't Give Away More Money. Get ready. I told you this is gonna be a challenge series, right? Uh, the, the, the authors are um, three academics, two from Notre Dame, one from Rice University. So these are not hacks, and they did this study of like, so what, what's, what's going on with American Christians? And there are two quotes that I want to kind of lead off with. The first quote is simply this. Self-identified Christians in the United States earned a total collective income in 2005 in the trillions of dollars. Anybody, anybody know how much a trillion is? Yeah. Self-identified Christians, okay? So they basically said, uh, they said, look, we're gonna take uh, people who go to church twice a month. You're probably pretty serious about your faith. And if I was to ask you, are you a Christian? You'd say, yes. Okay, then you fit into this group. Trillions of dollars. It is more than the GDP of every country in the world except the six most wealthiest just Christians in the United States. Okay, next quote. We estimated that if committed Christians in the United States gave 10%, the tithe of their after-tax income, that would provide an extra $46 billion per year of resources. So let me break this down really simply. If you're an American Christian, it doesn't, I'm not saying what's in your personal hand, but what is in our collective hand is $46 billion. And there's a lot of need out there, right? Anybody else agree with me that there's some need? And God asks us, God, there's all these problems in the world. When will you come and fix this stuff? And God's like, uh, how much food do you have? That's what Jesus says, right? And then God tells Moses, look, I've heard the cry of my people. I'm ready to do something. I'm going to send you. How are you going to do this, God? 
Moses, what's in your right hand? Oh. Oh. You see, God has this way when he wants to do something in the world, he doesn't just act unilaterally. He asks his people to buckle up and get going. So, I want to show you what $46 billion looks like because I had no idea. And as I read this, I want, I want, I want you to keep in, uh, I want to keep in mind one thing. Actually, I want to keep in mind two things, and I want to ask for one thing. The thing I want you to ask for is don't check out. I've done this a lot. The human brain, when it sees a list, checks out because it just it starts. I want you to, to, to discipline your mind to think of all of these things as I rattle them off because it's a list. And I want you to keep in mind two things. First thing is that this list happens after every church budget in the United States is fully funded. And this is a list of ands. Everything that you're about to hear, everything can be done with $46 billion plus the churches. So this is what $46 billion looks like. Anybody passionate about global missions? Well, if you're passionate about global missions and you wanted to send indigenous missionaries to different parts of the world and indigenous missionaries are the best way to reach people groups, don't send a white guy to Africa. Send an African to Africa because they speak the cultural language. You could send 150,000 new indigenous missionaries. How about Bible translation? You could triple the resources of translating the Bible into foreign languages. And you could send globally pastors to seminary. You could provide 50,000 needs-based scholarship for seminaries. How about uh, students that come from overseas to our universities? You know what you could do with $46 billion? You could also hire 1,500 new campus ministers to work with them. How about economic slavery? How about sexual slavery? You could finance the entire infrastructure for a think tank and an advocacy group to work to fight economic and sexual slavery. How about churches in Africa, Asian, Latin America? How about build, expand, and upgrade 75,000 churches? How about religious freedom? You could finance the infrastructure for an advocacy group to fight for religious freedom around the planet? How about reaching the unreached people groups? There are some still on our planet. How about quadrupling the budget for those organizations? Does that sound like anything that anybody wants to get on board with? Oh, I'm not done. How about global development? Microenterprise development projects. We do some of those in Haiti. How about 5 million microenterprise development projects? And keep in mind, these are ands. This is, you don't have to choose. $46 billion gets you all of this. How about polio? Erat closing the funding gap to eradicate polio from the world. How about clean water? A million clean water wells that would provide water for roughly 100 million people. How about HIV AIDS? 10,000 faith-based HIV AIDS prevention, education, and medication uh, organizations. How about malaria? Fully fund the fight against malaria. How about refugees? And here, I wanna pause. 
Everything on this list, hear me clearly, everything on this list is either clearly biblically mandated or falls firmly within the grounds of what it means to be a Christian in the world. Every single one of these things. Now, in 2005, there were 6,500,000 refugees in the world. Well, specifically, actually, to be honest, in Africa, Middle East, and in Asia. $46 billion in 2005 would have included providing food, clothing, and shelter for every single one of them. As of last night, there are 65 million refugees now. 65 million. How about Habitat for Humanity? Everyone ever work on a house before? I've done that. Quadruple the operating budget for Habitat for Humanity. Double the operating budget for World Vision. Sponsor 20 million needy children and quadruple all the resources for Christian medical missions in the world. Anybody find something they're passionate about in that list? Anybody see something in the world? They're like, man, I'd, be, I'd get behind that. Oh, I'm not done. Because how about home? How about home? How about 10,700 new youth ministers in the world, in, in the country? 10,700. Now, we are not underpaid pastors here at E3, but I've met some pastors who do vital work in rural and urban areas that don't get paid squat. $46 billion would find 50,000 of them and raise their, their uh, wages to a living wage. How about 500 new Christian prison ministries? Anybody? Anybody passionate about prisoners? Paul was. We should be too. How about uh, biotechnologies, bioethics? Man, the science is progressing so fast. How about a think tank to figure out how do we Christianly deal and, and, and approach the, the conundrums to bioethics? How about 45,000 ministers to the elderly? How about 300 initiatives to get people from different races and different ethnicities to sit down and talk to each other? Is that needed in our country? Can I get an amen? Thank you. How about financial education to reduce debt to 200,000 people? How about church-based job training and career counseling to 100,000 people? 10,000 scholarships for needy Christian college students. If you're one of those, say amen. I know some of you guys are in college and Christian, or maybe I've got to have a meeting with your parents. How about 3,000 scholarships for needy Christian seminary students? I was almost one of them. How about 100 million, $2 million, $101 million endowments for seminaries and divinity schools? How about 300 grad school scholarships for, for Christians who are pursuing PhDs? $46 billion gets you all of that. What's in our right hand? An awful lot. Now, when I first saw that list, I probably th I thought the same way a lot of you guys are thinking. Boy, I feel awful. The more I read it, the more hope I had. Because we have it. It's there. We can do this if we release our, the thing that's in our right hand. And let me push on you just a little bit more. So Revelation 22, 20, and that prayer, God, when will you do something? When will you come down here and fix all this? And it's like God looks down from heaven and says, I did do something. 
I put you in the wealthiest nation on the planet at the wealthiest time in history. When are you going to do something, God? God's like, when are you going to do something, church? Because it's all there. It's all there. And again, I ask all of us, so what's in your hand? What is it that you are holding on to? And please remember, I just talked a lot about money and generosity has to talk about money because it's a big idol. But this is not just about money, time, talents, treasures. What do you have to give? What do you have to give? I want to show you guys a a video um, that just swings the exact opposite direction of a guy who's not wealthy. But he looked around and says, you know what? I've got something in my right hand. And I, want, and I want to show people what it looks like to just take what's in my right hand and lay it down and say, God, do something. So it's a comedian, <clears throat> really good, uh, funny guy. Seen him a couple times. So just watch this and, and ask, ask what God might be calling you to do. People ask me all the time, Michael, what was your big break? Our next guest has performed on Comedy Central's Premium Blend. He made his first appearance on The Tonight Show from the Montreal Comedy Festival. You've seen him on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. That wasn't a big break. The big break was at a club. And right before I got on stage, I had a change in mindset about comedy. Normally when a comedian gets on stage, he wants to get laughs from people. And I felt a little shift take place where I felt like I was to go up there and give them an opportunity to laugh. Now I'm not looking to take. I'm looking for an opportunity to give. This changed everything. My name is Michael Jr. I'm gonna do some jokes. And ultrasounds come in color now, which is ridiculous. I know it's a black baby. It better be a black baby. I leave the club that night, and there's all these people giving me hugs and high fives, telling me their favorite jokes. Then I look across the street and I saw a homeless guy. And I thought to myself, what about him? Most comedy, most jokes are set up. My son, four years old, looks at me out of nowhere. And he says, Dad, I want to be a doctor. I was like, yes, yes. And then a punchline. Then he said, or a dinosaur. I understand that me doing comedy and doing all of these TV shows and making all these people laugh is really just a setup. My punchline is to make laughter commonplace in uncommon places. We go to Montrose, Colorado, a place called the Dolphin House. They take care of children who have been abused by their parents. And this grandmother explains to me that her um, grandson is being abused by his mom. He's so afraid of his mom that everywhere he goes, he wears a Spider-Man costume. So I get on stage, sitting right up front, Spider-Man. I start doing comedy. People start laughing, slowly but surely. Probably about 25 minutes into it, I hear a voice, and the voice says, my name is Ronan. And this little boy pulls off his mask. And it was one of the most powerful moments in my entire comedy career. Here's the deal. If we could just stop asking the question, what could I get for myself? and start asking the question, what can I give from myself? I think people would learn that you don't have to be a comedian to deliver a punchline. It's really what I want to get across to people. 
Yeah, I think I just did. I looked at the camera again. I don't know if I was supposed to do that. <laughs> Anything else you can think of? Yeah, I'm gonna say it right now. You've been set up. You in the setup. Be the punchline. Okay. I'm gonna walk off dramatically. The shift happens when you switch your thinking from what can I get for myself to what can I give from myself. What's in your right hand? And are you willing to lay it down?